Support for Class Dismissed comes from School Status. School Status helps educators at every level take control of student data for increased outcomes and meaningful stakeholder engagement. Find out more at schoolstatus.com. You're listening to Class Dismissed, episode 250, and I'm your host, Nick Ortigo. This episode, can a tool that helps school districts screen for the most qualified teachers during the hiring process actually help? We'll discuss. Dismiss is the podcast that inspires educators through story. Each episode, we cover some of the hottest topics and news in the world of education. Plus, we hear from a guest with a bright idea for education that you can apply in your community. This episode, what does reading comprehension look like? And how do you know if a student really gets it? Our guest will make it easier to answer those questions. Stay with us. Hello, everybody. Nick Ortigo here, and I'm joined by friend, chief academic officer, as well as co-host of the Class Dismissed podcast, Christina Pollard. Christina, how are you doing today? I am fantastic. That's three episodes in a row. You've been fantastic. I like that. I'm sorry, but go ahead. Tell yeah, tell me. I'm tell you. I'm fantastic because can you believe we have already put back five weeks of school? That's, that's impressive if you think about it, because here we are. We're recording right on the turn of August into September. Yeah, and you have five weeks under your belt. And that means yes. you've got a fall break coming up in a month, a month and a half, maybe. I don't know. Yep. About that. First week in October. Last week of September is intercession. So um, many, many of our teachers will have a two week break if they're not, you know, participating in our learning program. But I'm just so pleased because it has not been a hectic start. It's been an amazing start. I even feel like our our students are much more settled when we think about how kids came, kids and teachers really came back just really uncomfortable and out of sorts after the, you know, the shutdown and being in virtual learning, then hybrid learning. And then we came back this year really feels like we're in our group. That's good to hear. I love that. And I'm jealous of your fall break that you guys will have. Um, I know you you earn it by starting early, but we don't have that anymore. And I was going to try to book a vacation. And basically now I've got spring break or Christmas break because I'm going to go visit family and Thanksgiving break. And you know what? It's really expensive well, to travel Christmas break. Mm-hmm. So I wish it's we hard. had a fall break. Yeah. Yeah. So anyhow. But it's going to be great. Actually, when I think about it, I'm supposed to work three days that week. I'm on a 12-month contract, but I'm going to take those three days off and I'm catch a week vacation. Do I don't it. have any plans to go anywhere, but the couch sounds amazing. <laughs> That's right. You got to find a good show to binge watch. You watching anything lately? I'm no, you know, I'm a doctoral student. I'm knee deep in, in, in putting chapter four and five together. And so, no. <laughs> I hear you. I'm, I'm in the middle of Shit's Creek. I know I'm like way behind everybody who a lot of people have seen that, but I'm um, enjoying it. Today, I've got a, a story that came across my radar, and um, this one was interesting. And, and I'm not going to even mention the company they mentioned because it might embarrass the company, but I'll just go to it like this. Do, does your school district use any type of, I guess what I would call it is like a commercial screening tool? Like you pay a third party to help you screen teachers or is it all done in-house for your district? No, it's done in-house. Okay. So there are now like actual companies out there that, and again, I'm not going to mention the company name because they're going to take a hit in this this discussion and I, I don't want to embarrass them because it's just one one look at things here. But there are companies out there that will help you screen 
for new teachers. And, and it goes through like, you know, the application process has a list of questions that they formulate and they kind of sell it to school districts as like, all right, you're going to find teachers that will be better and you'll be able to retain longer is kind of the pitch. Um, that and, sounds like we would be completely dis- disconnected from the search process and that someone else is searching for us. Well, I would say I would in their defense, I would say it's like an early part of the process, right? Like it's a it's a filter that then they make it to your HR people or whoever does your recruitment. Um, and then they can kind of take a deeper look at what comes out of the initial. Well, search. let me say this for the state of Mississippi. That may have been an amazing tool 10 years ago. But with a teacher shortage crisis right, right. now. Kit beggars can't be choosers. No. And not only that, you've just got to have a different set of skills right now to fill your vacancies. And um, retaining your teachers is all, all going to be about culture and climate and how much support um, they receive in their present positions. So things are just kind of different right now. All right. Well, there's a large school district, a county school district in North Carolina. I'll leave it at that. They use one of these companies. And uh-huh. so then um, there was this article. It was in Education Evaluation and Policy Analysis. It was led by Olivia Chai, who's with Boston University, and Matthew Lennard, who's with Harvard University. And they decided to kind of take data from this particular school district in North Carolina. And again, I don't want to mention it because I don't want to embarrass anybody or like, you mm-hmm. know, make it seem like anybody's wasting money. I just want to kind of talk about what their findings were. So they looked at this company that was screening and helping in the hiring process. And they looked at all the data and they kind of tried to dis- see if there was any improvement with the teachers they got. Like, so here's what they found. They found that there was a small positive correlation between the company scores and the principal's evaluations of those teachers. So it's like, I guess the company, you know, scored these people and then the principals later, I guess, evaluated it and they see, uh, you know, a positive correlation, a small one. Okay. And then they found that there was no significant relationship between the company scores and the teacher's impact later on, on student test scores. So basically like it, it didn't help test scores. Like we didn't hire better teachers because of this. And then they also found teachers with a higher score with the third party company were more likely to leave the school that hired them after the first year. So I thought that was interesting as well. So it, it, was, is, almost, it was almost it worse. It really is, but I don't know if that service can really just, you know, be attributed um, to those results. Right. You can't, you can't say, but it's not, it's not making things better. This is, this is their conclusion, right? The actual researchers, they suggest that blank company, I'm not going to say it, um, their commercial screening tool is not necessary as a substitute for high quality screening processes that are conducted by human resource officials, which actually appear to be stronger predictors of desirable teacher outcomes and investing in those screening areas, like invest in their, their suggestion is that we should invest in human resources and more people to screen for you rather than pay a third party company to build some sort of software and do that process for you. Well, you know, a lot of times I get really excited about, progressive strategies and actions, but I just have to tell you, I'm old school. I want to do the legwork myself because I want to know and ensure that I'm putting the right person in front of our little people. 
Yeah, you're right. And and maybe this just isn't great software because have you ever watched the movie Moneyball? I know your son played baseball yes. and stuff, right? And and if you remember, like that's kind of what we're talking about, right? Like these guys mm-hmm. come in, they're like, we're just going to look at the numbers, let the stats help us pick the best players. And then there were kind of the old school recruiters like, no, I got to watch the player. I got to see how he swings and so forth. That's right. And, and in the end there, that Moneyball theory kind of appears to work at least for some baseball teams. So I think that's kind of maybe like what these companies are trying to do. Like let's money ball your, your teacher recruitment. Well, it it but, makes it a more efficient process. It allows you to put your time somewhere else because legwork is happening for you. But I just think that it's going to all be all about the leadership style and the culture and climate of the district as to, you know, exactly what steps you take in your recruitment as well as your retention. So I'm not going to knock it. I just you know, my my personal um, opinion is that I want to make those phone calls. I want to do the research. I want to truly know who I'm putting in front of me for an interview. Do you have, I think I've asked you this before, but I'm going to ask again. Do you have like um, a couple secret interview questions that you like to, I know we have to be careful, like when you work for accounting and stuff, Um, what you ask, but like anything. I do. And we try to um, change our questions up. We have a pool of questions. They're very scenario based. Um, no, you know, we really don't have yes or no type questions, but I really like to pose um, scenarios that um, have that are data driven, that talk about student engagement, that possibly have, um, you know, uncomfortable topics or struggles that teacher will have to teachers will have to talk us through. But more importantly, I really want to know that that teachers understand the standards for the grade level subject area that they are interviewing for. And I really want them to provide a mini lesson for me and be able to talk to me about strategies they use to make adjustments um, for students who need extra help or different help. So I think we've really gotten away from those basic questions. What's your philosophy of education? Why do you want to teach? I don't want to hear any of that because we all want to change the world <laughs> right. you know yeah. um, I really want to know that you understand those standards if they're shifting your standards if you're if you want to teach math do you really understand the math practices how will you incorporate them what will that look like um, what curriculum they've been exposed to what type of technology skills do they have so that I can understand you know just the depth of training and support that that teacher might need to incorporate our curriculum and resources. I think it's just changed a little bit. I've always kind of made like a list of questions that I like to ask people. Mm -hmm. And I don't necessarily use them in an interview process. I haven't interviewed like for a company and I'd probably get in trouble if I did use these for a lot of companies, but, Mm -hmm. and, and we don't have time to go into my whole list, but I'll give you an example of like kind of the stuff I like to ask people. Like you could say, who's the most impactful person in your life and why? And, the reason I like to ask that question, and you can go ahead, what, what's your thoughts on that? I was going to tell you that's a great question, but that's the type of question we put in writing prompts. And I guess I should have shared that. Um, we require our certified uh, candidates to do a writing prompt before they interview. Okay. So that's a great question. It, it helps us know their writing skills. We're able to check their grammar, um, how they organize their thoughts. But then the whole reason why you're asking that question, go ahead and share. It's the same reason. Well, I don't know. See, I once read an article, like if somebody cannot identify somebody, that sometimes is a red flag. Is that what you've heard or no? A little bit. Yes, because that, I mean, do they, are they in touch with, you know, uh, reality? Do they have a sense of purpose? Um, Have they been inspired? Also makes you wonder, can they inspire? Well, a lot of times if you can't name somebody or if they say it's myself, they might be a narcissist. Um, well, that's kind of, I didn't want to go there, but that's kind of a brutal look at it. But in another question I like to ask people, and this one's so silly, but do you return your grocery cart? Uh, you know, when you're like walking out to your car and you're unloading your groceries, do you, well, 
I, I want to know, do you return yours? Absolutely. Cause, cause <laughs> I some, do too. Because <laughs> somebody else is going to have to do it. And if somebody's like, no, I just leave it out there. That tells well, me they're probably I not a team player. Different. I just you don't know? want it to run into my car. So if I put it away, then perhaps someone won't leave one out that can run into my vehicle. Yeah. You know, paying yeah. it forward. I have a whole list of silly questions. We'll we'll go through them one day, but and, and they're not fair. I just it's my own it's my own list. But of, you know what? What's great about your silly questions? It also allows you to see somebody's personality, right? Because if they find Based the question they goofy, they might smile before answering. Yeah. And I like that because you can see is this person you know can, do they have a sense of humor? Do they have a relaxing side? Can they, can they have a conversation and get along with our team? Yep. All of that's important. Well, I'll save those for another episode, so stay tuned for that, all right? Christina, all right. are you ready for today's Bright Idea? Yes, let's go. All right. Our guest in today's Bright Idea segment is the best-selling author of the Reading Strategies book and the Writing Strategies book. Jennifer Saravallo recently released her latest book, which is titled Understanding Text and Readers, Responsive Comprehension Instruction with Leveled Text. Jennifer, welcome back to the show. Thank you. It's such a pleasure to be back with you. And for those that don't know, you were a guest back on episode 39, where we, we took a, a dive into uh, the Writing Strategies book. And, and in fact, that's been one of our most uh, listened to episodes on the Class Dismissed podcast. Um, and I think while we were doing that interview, you must have been working on understanding text and readers, right? I probably was. Yes, I probably I, I tend to juggle a couple of projects at a time. So it's probably true that And the other thing is, um, people don't realize this, but when you're finished with a book, it's not really ready to be out in your hands. You have, there's a whole production process and the designers design the pages and then the printer has to print it and then it ships. So it's very likely that it was, uh, writing was in production while I started my next project. Right. And we talked about this in the last interview. You have a, an excellent uh, publisher because they let you publish your books. Um, for those that can't see this book, it's, it's in color, there's charts, this isn't just like a little black and white book. It's very extensive. Heinemann is wonderful. That's my publisher. And um, the designer, Suzanne Heisler, who does the design, interior design and cover design, actually, um, for my books, is an incredible person to work with. She's just got such vision and such understanding of the content. And I think that she really uses design and color in a way that makes it easier for a reader to navigate a book and to really understand its content. So I'm, yes, I'm very, very fortunate. I know that. <laughs> I know there's a lot of good buzz about the book. I actually stumbled across its release organically. I, I was on my Facebook feed. I had a, a, a classmate that I went to high school with, uh, really hadn't talked to in probably over a decade. And she posted a picture of your book, Understanding Text and Readers. And she's like, so excited to read this. And I thought, well, I've interviewed her before. And that's awesome that, you know, this this has traction amongst the education community. That has to make you feel good. Oh, it absolutely does. And did you say high school? Yeah, it was a, a high school classmate who's now a teacher. Oh, high school classmate. Yeah. Oh, I thought you meant she taught high school. What does she teach? Um, you know, I'd actually have to jump over to her Facebook page. So you put me on oh, the okay. spot. I don't know exactly what she teaches, okay, but okay. but I do know she was one of the smartest people in my grade. So uh, it's great to hear that she's a teacher and she's, you know, and taking in your stuff and then, and then putting it back out there with her students. That's awesome. Um, Thank so, you for sharing that. Yeah, sure. And um, so as you wrote this book and, and you get it out there, what do you hope educators take away from reading your new book? Well, there's a number of different layers to the book. Um, overall, it's a book about comprehension and trying to help teachers to make sense of something that is sometimes very hard to make sense of. Comprehension, you know, there's different uh, viewpoints out there on what it means to even understand from, you know, a Rosenblatt perspective where 
comprehension is a construction by the reader of uh, melding the reader's prior knowledge and experience together with the text. And um, what that means is that different people approaching the same text will have different comprehension because they're coming to it with different backgrounds. Um, and then there's people out there saying, no, that, you know, what we should be teaching kids to do is to really study the text for as a text that's created by an author to try to figure out what the author said and to not bring yourself to the text. Um, and then we have, you know, the proficient reader research. And then we have um, different uh, educational theorists who talk about comprehension in different ways. And I think sometimes the classroom teacher um, is left thinking, what am I really looking for? What, what, does, what does comprehension look like? What does it look like when a kid really gets it? Um, and so what I wanted to do in this book, in part, was to offer teachers um, historical background and research and theory. Um, but I, I get through that part pretty quickly. And I move to kind of the meat of the matter, which is um, the way that I make sense of comprehension. I organize comprehension along these different goals that I first introduced in the reading strategies book. So for fiction, it's plot and setting, character, vocabulary, and figurative language and themes and ideas. And for nonfiction, main idea, key details, vocabulary and text features. And then within those goals are skills. And then within those skills are progressions that are laid on top of levels. So what I'm trying to argue in the book is that what getting it looks like for a kid who's reading a book like Frog and Toad is going to be different than what getting it looks like for a kid who's reading because of Winn-Dixie. And if we can, as teachers, know some things about text levels and the kinds of things to expect of those levels, um, then we can know some things about what to expect of reader response. I also start off the, the book with a story about a student who um, was sort of slipping through the cracks because the assessments that were being used to learn about her comprehension weren't really matching what she was doing every day. She was being assessed in short texts and then reading long, long books and her teachers were sort of at a loss for where to go. Let's drill down on that story you open up with. It's it's a student that you come across um, in the book. She's named Vanessa. Um, you were working in the Bronx district um, and you were not the student's teacher. I guess you were there on professional development. Is that right? That's right. Yeah, I was, I was a, a staff developer working it, with the teachers there. Yeah, And you started working with her and, and you knew kind of her story. She had been held back a few times um, and she wasn't doing well on, I guess, the reading test for that area. Is that correct? Yeah, she she hadn't passed the state test, which is essentially a comprehension test. And yet the assessments that her teachers were using were supposed to be telling the teacher whether she was able to comprehend at certain levels of text. So it was sort of this mismatch between her the measure of comprehension on a grade level comprehension test and the measure of comprehension on a different grade level comprehension test. And so I guess your hypothesis was before you really even went deep into this was, you know, she, she can read these short excerpts, but when we give her a whole book, she's having trouble comprehending, right? Yes. Yeah. And what we discovered was after asking her to read a whole book and uh, we put these sticky notes inside the book. So along the way, she would have to stop and respond in writing to show what she was making sense of um, questions about characters and the main events in the plot and what figurative language meant and what big ideas she was getting from the themes and in, um, in the text. And it turned out to be that it was several grade levels, many reading levels and several grade levels difference between her whole book comprehension and her short text comprehension. And the skills specifically that we noticed she needed help with were ones that had to do with sequencing, um, synthesizing or putting events together, and also her stamina. 
And with those pieces in mind, it started to make sense of why she was having a hard time on the state test, which which challenged her stamina in a way that these um, other running record assessments didn't. Um, it was independent reading, quiet reading by yourself, usually over the course of an hour and a half or two hours. The texts were longer than what she was being asked to read. So, yeah, I, I feel like the the um, the different assessment helped us to see different variables, and those different variables helped us to pinpoint specific skills and strategies to work on with her that really helped make a difference. And so, you you sent out, I guess, assessments in a larger scale, right, to kind of see is this just an issue with Vanessa, or is this everywhere? Yeah, we started by um, repeating it at that school. So we had other kids in third grade and fourth grade and fifth grade. And we really were focused on kids reading between levels J and W. J was the first level where kids were being uh, asked to read excerpts of whole text rather than whole texts for the comprehension assessment. So level J, if you're not familiar, um, the Fountas and Pinnell leveling system is an alphabetic leveling system, which goes from A to Z. Level J correlates to... Um, Level, uh, text that you might know, like the Little Bear series or the Poppleton series, um, all the way up to level W, which is um, um, like a sixth grade level chapter book, like Freak the Mighty, for example, or uh, Catherine Applegate's Home of the Brave. So we really focused on those levels where it seemed like a deeper comprehension analysis was going to help teachers to guide their teaching and also where kids uh, were we're reading whole chapter books every day in class. And therefore we thought we should have an assessment of, of what that looks like, whether they're actually able to read and understand those level texts. So we repeated the assessment at that school for any kids that, who were, you know, between those level reading between levels J and W. And we found on average, Vanessa was sort of an extreme outlier. Her, her short text assessment um, placed her as being able to comprehend level R text, the whole book assessment, level M text. So that's quite a difference. Most kids in the class, in the school, were more like a two level discrepancy with the short text assessment showing that they could comprehend a couple of levels higher than what they could comprehend in a whole book. And then I did a year long pilot study where I sent out books across the whole country. And I tried to pick very different locations with very different populations. So one of the one of the districts that piloted it was Great Neck, Long Island, which is a, a very wealthy uh, district. And then we did work in uh, Southern California with kids who mostly spoke English as a second language. We did uh, a school in Utah. It was like kind of everywhere, right? right? So schools that had a more of like a guided reading approach to literacy, schools that had more of a textbook approach, schools that did re- you know independent reading and reading workshop. And so what we found on average was that kids were uh, a couple of the kind of remarkable findings that yes, a couple levels lower in the chapter book seemed to be a, a right fit than um, than what they were, you know, play, where they were placing on shorter text assessments. And then also we found, I asked the kids at the end of the assessment, how do you think you did? Was this book just right for you? And overwhelmingly kids would say the book was just right because I knew the words. We saw that over and over and over again. The kids, yeah, the book was just right. There weren't any words I didn't know, or it wasn't hard for me to read the words. And I started to realize that probably For a lot of kids, even the idea of what it means to read a book and really being able to read the book is, can I read the words or not? And what would it look like to sort of unpack for kids what comprehension looks like Mm -hmm. and explain to them, you know, if you're in a book like this, this, this book, the author crafted really complicated characters who have flaws and who have strengths and who change across the course of the novel. And so if you're really understanding this book, you would understand these characters like people who have 
good traits and bad traits and who change. Let's see if we're, we're looking at that. Let's see if we're paying attention to that and how, um, you know, I, I'm the, I'm, maybe this is also just my own bias, but I'm the kind of person where I, I don't find it fun to read something. I'm only kind of getting, I really want to understand right. it. Yeah. I read slow enough that I can understand it. I reread if I don't get it. Um, and so I wanted to make sure kids had that experience too, that they really feel what it feels like to really understand. And, you know, Vanessa was uh, an example of a student who just really didn't know what she didn't know. Uh, she came to me at the end of the year and she goes, Hey, Miss Jenna, I, I get what you mean now by make a movie in your mind. Like you, I can actually see it now. It's, I could see it in my mind like a movie. Yeah. And, and that, that's a good my tip, heart, right? right? It broke my heart that she didn't know that until this point. And, you know, um, so anyway, yeah. So that's kind of, uh, kind of what we found. And, uh, kind of what, one of the things I hope that this book does is helps open teachers' eyes to, um, really what it can look like when kids are understanding at these various levels of text. And then maybe they'll use these student samples in the book with kids so that to show kids what, what it could look like or the kinds of, gives them tips of the kinds of things to be looking for in the books that they're reading. Now, now Vanessa's story does have a happy ending. Um, so um, those who grab the book can kind of see how that all plays out. But um, one thing you do in this book that would really grab me as an educator is the fact that you say that this book can help an educator identify if a student is, you put in quotes, getting it, understanding, comprehending the book, um, even if the educator is not familiar with the book that the student is reading. And so I got to ask you, how can you do that? Yeah, I think one of the things um, that happens sometimes with comprehension assessment is that um, the the book that the students are reading is is a book that the teacher has read him or herself, and the teacher sometimes asks questions looking for a specific answer. But one of the things I try to argue in the book is that there's not necessarily a one right answer to any of these comprehension questions, but rather there are a variety of, uh, of, of right answers that follow a certain type. So uh, the, the example I gave you earlier, with the if we know that the character in a book is complicated, then what we're looking for to the question, tell me about your character, is a student who's able to name positive and negative traits. And the traits that are most salient for them, one reader might see different traits than another based on your own experiences, based on people you know in your life, based on your vocabulary, um, and that more than one answer could be correct. And so what I'm trying to do in the book is to offer teachers um, sort of qualities of response so that they can look at a student's response through that lens and identify if they're if they could if they need more support. I'll give you another example. Um, if we know, for example, that a, a plot in a level R text is likely to have flashback, then if a child's reading a level R text and we ask them to retell, if they're only telling us uh, in sequence, we can know that they might be missing something and, in the text. You you kind of structure the book as a story, but you also do a lot of charts and kind of quick, like a teacher can flip open to a certain section of this book and take away from some of the charts that you have. And if I'm understanding what you're saying correctly, and I'm looking at the book, like you were talking about the, um, the what was the term you put on the uh, actual levels with the uh, using the alphabet level J and so forth? That's the Fountas and Pinnell text level gradient. That's the official term of that leveling system. And there's a lot of leveling systems out there, but that's the one I like the best. So, so that's so what you, I use. You break that out basically J all the way through. I don't know if you go down to W or not, but you break that out and then you'll say, you know, Jay, here's some example books. This is kind of the categories uh, that the students will be reading. But you tell the teachers in very short and in a few words what to look for this, that the students have accomplished, correct? 
Exactly. And I do that for, I'm giving a lot of fiction examples, but I also have it for nonfiction. So in, in nonfiction texts, I think we need to be looking not just at short passage nonfiction, like articles, but also at whole books. As, a, as an author of whole book nonfiction myself, I will tell you, I have ideas that I'm hoping to get across across the whole book. And that also you can dip in and find facts, but I, I hope that people read the whole thing. Um, but it's a different task, I think, to read a whole continuous nonfiction book that has multiple sections or chapters and to read um, uh, you know, a, a short article. Uh, there's there's sort of different mind work. So uh, same thing with the fiction. I offer a progression of skills for understanding main idea, a progression of skills for identifying key details and being able to compare and contrast information. And the look fors change as the text levels and the complexity within those levels change. So at the point when a nonfiction book is likely to have multiple main ideas or complexity with the ideas, I call that out for teachers so that they know to look for that in kids' response too. And it looks like you show students work as well, like their actual handwritten work in the book. And then you kind of do a breakdown of what the student's writing. Why is it important for you to show it in that form? You know, I think that there's a lot of um, bulleted lists of expectations for kids. Like I, I just think about a lot of the standards documents I've seen, whether it's the Common Core standards or the the Texas uh, text, I think you say TEKS standards, right? Of different states have their own versions now of of, of standards. And there's a lot of, you know, by the end of the year, students must be able to bullet point, bullet point, bullet point. And there's never examples of what that looks like. And so one of the things I wanted to be able to do in this book was to show, yes, an actual kid handwriting. This is a real kid wrote this. Um, here is what it looks like. Um, and here's how it sounds. And then with call outs from me to notice you know, notice that she's using three character traits or notice that he's talking about um, in explaining the vocabulary word, not just giving a definition, but he's giving an explanation because he's pulling information from the text features and the photograph to give more information. So I, I really wanted to not just say it and tell it, but I wanted to show it too. You kind of, you know, open up the book with the, the, the thought that comprehension is fluid and text level reading isn't a perfect science. And why is it important to get that out up front? Well, yeah, so there's this, um, this two page spread that you might have come upon, which is a sort of historical highlights of leveling in, a, in, in the United States. And I, I pr mm -hmm. provided that in there, because one of the things that's happened, um, with good intentions of trying to help kids be in books that they could be successful with and read well, is that leveling has become um, very common. It's, it's hard to even find a school that doesn't use some form of leveling. Some, some schools use Lexile, some schools use qualitative leveling system like the Fountas and Pinnell levels that I, that I prefer. Um, and one of the things that's happened with the um, consistent use of leveling and leveled text in schools is that people have become very uh, focused and kind of rigid with the use of levels. So uh, for example, they might administer one assessment that's on a leveled text. And from that one assessment, um, you know, tell a student, you can only read this level text, or this is your level. And what I'm trying to do in the beginning of the book is to show that, yes, it's more fluid than that with an example from Vanessa, but lots of other examples where a student who is highly motivated might be able to read a text that's much harder, or a student who um, doesn't have a lot of prior knowledge about a particular topic, might need an easier nonfiction text than the level that they typically read. Or when it's a long text, it's a different story than a short text. So 
Um, what I'm trying to do is to show people that yes, levels can be a guide. They can help us to know look fors. They can help us to predict some things about texts that maybe we haven't even read ourselves. Ourselves, but but using them in the rigid way where we're we're fixing kids to just one level at one time is really a misunderstanding of how texts are leveled, and it's a misunderstanding of how a reader interacts with the text. Yeah. And I guess, you know, the goal for the book for a teacher may be, you know, to how to identify comprehension and, and some of the tricks and things we've talked about. But really, the ultimate goal for the book is probably to to make a student a lifelong reader to not discourage them. Is that correct? Oh, yeah, sure. That's important. Yeah. I probably should have said that first. But I think yes, all of it. Like I said, if you are not comprehending, then what fun is reading? And I think a lot of disengagement with reading is rooted in a lack of understanding. Um, right. So if kids are not understanding, and if we can make it easier for them to understand, make it clearer what understanding looks like, give them strategies to understand, absolutely. <laughs> Reading becomes more joyful, kids become more engaged, kids choose to do it even when they're not told to do it, and they become lifelong readers because of that. I was reading through some reviews on Amazon and one jumped out at me um, that somebody wrote about your book and they said, comprehension can feel like such an elusive, slippery goal Jennifer Saravala's new book erases all the fuzziness. What's even more important is that now I can erase the fuzziness for students too. Um, so oh, I, I love that. Yeah, <laughs> and I think that I think that really kind of you know summarizes what what you're going for here. So um, you know, keep up the great work. It, it's a really um, fascinating book. And I think before we even started recording, I was asking you like, do you put this together by yourself? Because there is you you back up a lot of your your research or a lot of what you write with research. And you also have so many charts and examples. Uh, so, uh, But you were saying you do this all on your own, right? Yeah. I mean, I have a wonderful team at Heinemann. I've got an editor who checks over my work. And I've got the designers that I talked about. And there's a marketing team. So I, I definitely have help along the way of, of the process of making a book. But all the writing I do myself. And I'm very fortunate to be able to focus on reading and writing. My, my, you know, I do literacy all day. I read about it. I read blogs. I read research. I read articles. I attend conferences. And so I'm just constantly immersed in it. So, um, so I guess that makes the writing about it a little bit easier. Again, the uh, title is Understanding Text and Readers. Thank you again, Jennifer. We really appreciate your time. And if anybody wants Thank to track you. you down, what's a good place? I know you've got a huge following on Twitter. Is that kind of like where you like to hang out? So yeah, I'm on Twitter at, at Jay Saravalo. I've got a website, jennifersaravalo.com. Um, Heinemann's actually started a Jennifer Saravalo site that's a little bit separate from the other pages. And that's at heinemann.com slash Saravalo. All these, you have to know how to spell my last name, which you could probably find even with mistakes on Google. Um, and uh, yeah, I need to get on Instagram. I'm being told by younger teachers, um, but I'm not, I'm not there yet. And there's also a Facebook group, the Reading and Writing Strategies Facebook group that has something like 54,000 members now of amazing educators who share. And I pop in there a lot and I answer questions. And um, this summer, this past summer, I did a writing strategies uh, camp, summer camp. So I came on live every day for 25 days and taught strategies for my writing strategies book. So that's all archived there too. So it's a great resource. Well, thanks so much again for your time and best of luck. Thank you so much for interviewing me. It was great talking to you as always. That's going to do it for this episode of Class Dismissed. If you want to send us an idea or comment, remember you can always email us at info at classdismissedpodcast.com or tweet us at classdismissed.com. 
We're here to support educators, but we need your support as well. So please subscribe to the show. And we'd also appreciate it if you could leave us a five-star review on iTunes. On behalf of all the good people working at School Status and Christina, representing all those educators out there, thank you for listening. I'm Nick Ortigo, and I'll talk with you next week. Class dismissed. <laughs>